There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you, excuse me, when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ has appointed it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he is also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. All right, well, we just got a few weeks left. And so having finished through kind of a last series that filled my mind with a lot of thinking, and I could probably go on and on about embodied Christianity, um, instead I want to just spend a few weeks talking about being the church for the world as we are going to cease to be a community unto ourselves we continue to be the church for the world and the first thing i want to talk about is to be is to talk about how we are appointed as christians so that we can begin appointing christians that that part of just being a christian when you get baptized, when you profess the faith and you say, this is now my life, what comes with that appointment is a purpose and responsibility. And part of that is to begin the process of appointing other people as Christians. And so I wanted to look at Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 16 that Riley read for us this morning and kind of anchor into this idea. And I'm going to start in the center of the text. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Ephesians 4 and look at verses 7 through 13. I'm going to read them here again for us. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Now here Paul writes to his church and he's writing a little parenthetical statement. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Paul's getting pretty grand. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up 
until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. All right. This brings me to my opening question for all of us in this room and on Zoom. Why was it Jesus's plan to leave? Why was it part of Jesus's plan to ascend into the clouds and leave his disciples who he had appointed as followers? He went out and he chose 12 guys and then he went through three years of ministry and then he leaves. Why is this the master plan for saving humanity? Why not just stick around and just do it, Jesus? You're king. You're, you can prove you eternally live and have dies and resurrected. You are God. Take the throne and lead. And he's like, bye. Why is this the plan? This is so important for us as Christians to really meditate and imagine and think and just, just imagine yourself in that space with those 12 as Jesus is entering into this really thin space and they're starting to go, wait a second, he's resurrected, but doesn't seem quite right. And he's like, I'm going now. They're like, Jesus, you're in charge, run this thing. And so it's the sort of mystery, isn't it? If we really sit and ponder it, it's a mystery that's worth us sitting and going, why did he do this? He did amazing miracles. He turned water into wine. He healed sickness. He raised people from the dead. He multiplied food supplies. But all of the same wisdom in which he did all of those miracles also made him decide to give his life over willingly to corrupt systems of government, turning the other cheek to his enemies, and faithfully trusting God the Father into death. And when new life was birthed, he rose from the grave, and he leaves. What good does leaving do? that not leaving could not do? What good does leaving do that staying wouldn't be able to accomplish? That is the question, because in that we find our necessity to the kingdom program. Jesus has made us, we are not necessary in and of ourselves, he has made us a necessary part of the program by appointing us to do something he could well do, but he wants us to do instead. And so he chooses to leave, he appoints the 12, they then appoint more and more and so on and so on. And here are the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, not even 12 of us in this room who carry on that baton. So to explain this so that we can get a little more grounded or I can get my head in it at least, let me tell you a personal story. Before our previous pastor, Clint, left Citizens, I had the pleasure and privilege of being an elder, right? 
and a teacher when I had the time. So I could say, hey, it's really busy at work right now. I just can't preach this quarter. And that's fine. I didn't have to preach. Or I could say, hey, I got a bunch of time. I can do two Sundays in the next eight weeks. Great, John, go ahead and do two Sundays in the next eight weeks. As an elder, I was able to flirt with the idea of leadership without the responsibility of leadership. Clint was always there, and it was frankly his job to lead the church. He was the one getting paid for it. He was the one who knew how to do all this stuff, and he was the teacher and I was the student. So ironically, even though I was very responsible for all of my mistakes and made plenty of them as an elder, I really actually didn't have to take the brunt of the blame. I didn't even, I didn't even feel the weight of some of those mistakes because Clint would take the fall for them because he is the pastor. He's the leader. He's the one training me. But because the pressure wasn't there for me, the growth was also much slower. So when Clint departed and said, bye, now part of the plan is for you to do what is necessary. I've appointed you and all of the people in the room at the time here affirmed me. I was now appointed with something and it was necessary for me to take on the responsibilities of that role and to feel the full weight of that leadership and what was necessary. No longer could I just play around with the idea of being an elder and preaching because I enjoyed it. Now it was my responsibility to do it because Clint had left the mantle of leadership to me and he was no longer the primary carrier of the burden. Now, once this happened, the growth was not just way faster, like light speed faster, like break your neck fast, but it was also inevitable. There was no way I could not grow if I were to continue in my appointed role. So the answer from the biblical story of why Jesus left, and in a smaller way was true of when Clint left, seems to be that it pushes his disciples forward in a way that sticking around never could. That kind of irreversible change, not just compels, but actually forces. It puts the pressure on the students to deliver to what the leader believes they are now capable of doing. So the leader empowers, Jesus empowers his disciples. He says, you can do this, you are ready. And the only way you, I believe you're going to step up is if I leave. And this is all part of the plan for your growth and as Paul says, maturity to become the full measure, the measure of the fullness of Christ. Change and transformation and growth from students into leadership is part of the necessary plan. Because if in my appointment to leadership, 
I had a choice to make. I either had to step up or lose it all. And not just me lose it all, but all of the flock that had affirmed me, all of you guys that had been saying, John, this is it. There were going to be consequences for all of you. And that is a divinely appointed pressure, not just to me as the pastor, but to all of you in this room. Because any follower of Jesus is a disciple. And they are all appointed at first as students so that all of you may become in your own way a leader, a teacher, some form of servant that is growing in maturity and needs to appoint a new generation, a new follower. Thankfully, when Jesus did this and he left them, he empowered them with his spirit, right? Acts 1, up to the clouds. Acts 2, what happens? Anybody? Acts 2. What is the next thing that happens after he ascends into the clouds? Twelve disciples huddle and what? I'm looking for it. What happens? The Spirit comes, Ron. Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in tongues of fire. So if we think about the dominoes that are toppling in this story, the first domino to topple is Christ's ascension. It is that domino that is, makes it necessary for the next domino to topple. All of the disciples go, what now? Jesus goes, this, tongues of fire, Pentecost, empowered with the Holy Spirit. They go, oh, Peter then preaches out of a window and, and 3,000 people, boom, just ignites the story of the church. But without Christ ascending and a permanent shift happening, these people, these 12 students who loved and were comfortable just being right behind Jesus and saying, you can take the fall for it. I'm enjoying the learning process. And honestly, I would be comfortable staying in it forever because it's way more fun to be the student than the teacher. Because learning's a blast. I have no real consequences. You're in charge of teaching me. And if it goes wrong, it's your fault. And Jesus says, that's not the plan. The plan is to grow you into places where you will have and realize that you have always been being led into a place of leadership. Joseph Campbell, who I've talked about before, is a, is a big voice on this sort of idea of universal myth and story. So for storytellers, uh, Campbell's idea of a hero's journey is like the bread and butter of story and script writing. At most movies and most movies, stories, bestsellers follow the mold of the hero's journey. The very beginning of the hero's journey is always some irreversible change that happens so that the hero can no longer go back to his comfort zone. One of the best examples is Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. Aunt and uncle die. Home is burned up. Empire is ravaging Tatooine. He can't go back. There's nothing to go back to. This always makes a compelling beginning to a hero's story because the hero is now forced to grow. The hero has no other choice. When Clint left, he literally moved to South Dakota and it was like, John, there's, 
You can't go back to being an elder under another pastor. There's no going back. So you got to grow up. It's time to level up. The disciples could say, well, we liked it better when Jesus was here. But the reality is he's gone. So what are you going to do with this amazing thing? that you've been appointed with, this incredible life that you have had the privilege and you alone have had the privilege. You alone have the story. So when we think about the word appointed, there's two ways we can think about it. When I looked up the definition of appointed, it says assign a job or role to someone. Now there's two ways you can think about this. We all take on appointments that are temporary. Uh, I can take on a job at a company and then I can quit. And unless I run the company, there won't be tremendous ramifications. It'll be somebody's job to replace me. So some kinds of appointments are a temporary appointment where you can take a job, you can quit, you're not expected to continue that role. But other kinds of appointment are an entire irreversible identity shift. There is no going back from having a child. Once you have a child, you are always a mother or a father. Now, you can abdicate your role. You can say, eh, not really a mom or dad. You can leave. Burden the other person with far more work than they would have with you. But you never stop being the mother or the father. This is what being a Christian is. Once you say to Christ, okay, I believe it, I'm yours, you then become his captive. This is what Paul says in verse 8. This is why he says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Earlier, prior to this passage, he says, as a prisoner for the Lord. So Paul is embracing this identity shift. And he is saying, look, there's really no way of going back. So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with this permanent identity shift? Are you going to pretend that it's like a job and then unnecessarily burden everybody else by your foolishness and your immaturity? Or are you going to grow up? and realize that to enter into the faith is to receive an appointment that comes with responsibility and a chief end, the like single most universal end, like practically, is that you will then be charged with appointing the next generation, the next people. We as a church right now are in a job of appointment who church in this building. That is a responsibility that if we abdicated, it would unnecessarily burden other people with. We have an immediate responsibility of appointment. But each of us individually also, if we sit and listen with the Spirit, He is saying, you're not practicing your faith so that you can lead and appoint others. Or He's saying, good job, now is the moment. He's telling you something that is going to speak to you in this process of growing from a student to a teacher. Because, I mean, imagine how confusing 
it would have been for the disciples to have Jesus leave. Much, much more confusing than for us to be closing this church. And yet they realized in that moment there was a gravity. They rethought through everything that happened. And like we've practiced with understanding God's narrative, we say, okay, this didn't go like we expected. So God, like, put me into your script for a second. Let me see the notes on this part of the story. Like, help me understand how this is part of your necessary plan for the kingdom to come in Portland right now. I'm asking that question. I hope you are all asking that question as well. Because he has been leading us and teaching us in the process. He has been appointing us all here and then he has been teaching us to become people who are ready to make appointments of others. So the second you walked in the door of this church, whether you've been here two months or seven years, was not an arrival, it was an enrollment. This is a training ground to get you to a place of transformation from follower to leader. So when I had been entrusted to shepherd all of many of you in this room at the beginning, this was three years ago for me, it almost instantly felt like an unbearable weight. Nobody can prepare you for the feeling of leading a church, whatever the size. Emotionally, spiritually, it's something. And it immediately felt like an unbearable weight. And I wanted out. It did not seem fun all of a sudden. Suddenly the support that I had had was gone. Suddenly everything looked like a question mark. We hit March 2020, full-on worldwide pandemic. I'm just going, I, God, you ascended. Can you like come back down? <laughs> Help me out. And he says, this is necessary for your growth, John. And part of the master plan that was so difficult is that he never meant for me to hold on to it all alone. The weight was unbearable because it is unbearable alone. The job Jesus appointed to me via Clint and those of you who were in the room at the time was necessary for me to grow. I had to feel the weight of responsibility of both Clint and in, in a way Jesus saying, you got this, which was literally word spoke to me. You got this, John, you've got this. Imagine Jesus going, because I know how directly how it feels when somebody says you got this and then they leave. This is what the disciples felt. Jesus was like, you got this, you got it. You're gonna be good, you know, gone. They're like that jerk, <laughs> we don't got this. I had to own the position and the responsibilities. I had to believe I had all that I needed in our small little community, that that was the proper resource, that that with God's spirit empowering in Pentecost-like fashion was all that was necessary for God to do what he needed to do with me in that season which was to become a Christian leader who appoints and empowers others to lead in various ways with various gifts. 
Verse 11 and 12, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So like I've already said, if I'm honest, full confession, it has taken truly until now for me to really own that appointment of being a pastor. To really get over the bitterness of being like, Jesus, I left me. To get over that frustration, to deal with the reality of that weight and realize it doesn't all sit on my shoulders. To feel capable, bold enough, strong enough to appoint people to positions of responsibility and empower them. To realize it's not because I'm in any way a perfect person, but that I am the person that God chose for the job, which is true of any of you all who have been appointed to any role in this church. There are times where you go, well, that kind of sucked. Wow, why was I appointed for this? Like, that did not go how I imagined. I am not the best person for this job, but you're the person for this job. You are the one. You get to do it. And that is the beauty of the process of the faith is that each and every one of us in this community has the power that we need. As trite as that sounds, as silver lining as that sounds, that is the biblical honest truth. So here we are and we're closing and it feels very incomplete to me. There are many things where I feel like I have many regrets. But I also have to realize that God's in process with me as he is in process with you. Jesus, for whatever reason, chose not for certain kinds of appointments to happen through me. I imagined after about year one, a group of a couple elders with me leading and growing this church. I imagined a population growing here in a community burgeoning here. I imagined interested new believers finding experienced believers here and saying, I'd like to learn from you. And the experienced believers here saying, we would like to teach you. And an organic development of happening that in three years, I did not find one elder. So it does feel incomplete. And yet, as I look at the three years and I say, okay, God, my expectations, one thing, give me your narrative. I look around and I go, he gave me the gift of appointing every person here a greater role than they had when they walked in the door. Some a very visible one, some a more hidden one. But every person I see here today and those that I don't see here today that I know the same thing is true of, Christ has given me the grace of practicing that role of being somebody who is appointed so I can appoint. So in whatever I do next, I do not to go, well, that was an identity that I assumed for the job and I no longer need to practice the universal Christian principle of appointing others. I could easily do that. I could say, oh, whatever's next, I'm not the lead pastor, I'm not a pastor. I'm just working at a job. Oh, it's so nice not to have that responsibility of feeling like I need to grow the church. 
And I would be sinning. I would be absolutely sinning because I would be missing the mark of my purpose as a Christian in this world, whether I am in a plaque with your name on it, name tag position where people expect me to appoint or not. Because let me tell you, if everyone in this church goes to a new church and you are practicing this process of saying, okay, I'm here to learn, to grow, to lead. You're gonna be so loved wherever you go. You're gonna be so useful wherever you go. You will become so necessary wherever you go. I don't care where you go. It does not matter because it is a universal principle from scripture that if you do this, it will be good for the kingdom. So my hope, my, my crazy hope, is that in the next three weeks that we can level up again in this process of closure, that we can make, as I've told Megan, closing this church awesome. Awesome in that we will see that God has done something with us in this process. Even though, like me, I'm sure you all have regrets. And I'm sure sometimes you will go, why on earth am I here now? God, this seems like just such a faint impression of what I thought my life would be like as a Christian. And he says, nope, I got you exactly where you want you. You got this as he's rising into the clouds. And we're feeling all of those feels that you feel. Abandonment, frustration, bitterness. Uh, this is not the plan. I miss living my life. Somebody's making a mistake. Somebody's not leading well. Jesus was leading the best possible way he could lead in leaving. That's tough to think about. So I want to take just a minute as you're all processing with me your new enrollment into a new identity perhaps or realizing the enrollment that you've had that you've kind of brushed aside or said that's not my responsibility or I don't have time or that was John's job. Whatever, you, wherever you are at, I'm re-enrolling you. And I wanna tackle just a couple things that I imagine may be roadblocks for some of you. Because I think many of us have let this process of appointment of others slowly shrivel up or we've compartmentalized it to one area where we feel most effective, creating a new kind of comfort zone. For instance, that is not my gifting, John. This is my gifting. Okay. And what do we do with the whole universal discipleship thing? Discipleship's not my gifting, John. Evangelism's not my gifting, John. This. Maintaining the building, that's my gifting. Tech is my gifting. Children's ministry is my gifting. Singing and worship is my gifting. Teaching is my gifting. So I'm sorry, I don't have to do that. I, I, I don't think that gets us 
to what Paul means when he says, so Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. He is saying here, you gotta do whatever you all need to do together to increase maturity, unity, and to further the kingdom of God. It will not always look like growth. I don't think we failed. I think we did exactly what God had in mind. Weird to think about because it would be very tempting for me to say this was a failure. But I will not do that because that puts me in charge of determining the narrative over this season. It is the devil's voice of condemning me and saying, you are a screw up. These people couldn't do it, whatever. Finger pointing, blame, and what the end result of that is self-righteousness and justification. Instead, the mental exercise of flipping it upside down and saying, okay, God, humble me, <laughs> teach me, grow me, this was part of my enrollment in the University of Christianity and you needed me to go through this because of the kingdom plan you have for my life, which includes continuing to maybe bang my head against the wall in Portland in the process of appointment. And he says, that may be, that may be. Are you gonna stop practicing the kingdom, if that's the reality. So I think a few things happen that become roadblocks for us. The first one is we misunderstand what our appointment into the body or into leadership means. Talked about this a little bit. I am this. That's who I am, that's what I do. In verse four, Paul says, there is one body, and he goes on with all these ones. One spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, but. Sometimes in the text you need to look for operating phrases. There is one but, is an operating phrase in this text. It's important, it tells us what Paul's trying to say. There is one big unified church, but each of us has a certain role or calling. And I think there are huge challenges that humans deal with when we become part of the body and seek to fulfill our purpose as Christians and become leaders with this issue of there being one. We think that we need to assimilate first into the group of appointed ones, of the ones. So, Jerry Seinfeld does a bit on clothing in his stand-up where he says, anytime I see a movie or a TV show where there's people from the future of another planet, they're all wearing the same thing. 
Somehow they've decided this is gonna be our outfit. They've got the silver jumpsuit with the V-Nike, the, the, the V-stripe and the boots. And they say, this is it. We've decided all of Earth, we're gonna wear this now. The future vision, oftentimes of a group, is that group identity. And we are intrinsically imitation organisms. We tend to parrot what we see on the outside. So for instance, if you walked into this church and everybody had a suit and tie on, you would have two options in your mind as a parroting organism. You either go, next time I'm bringing a suit and tie, or you go, that church ain't for me, right? It is much harder to go, I'm good in my shorts and my ball cap. Because that is what being a Christian is to me. Doesn't matter. I don't need to wear the suit and the tie. And I don't need to find a new church. You see how much harder that pathway is than the pathway of assimilating. So what we tend to do is we go, there is one, there is one, there is one, there is one, there is one. I need to become the one in order to be what Jesus wants me to be. We feel the pressure to assimilate into a group of appointed ones. But we know that this doesn't work when we parrot things on the outside. If I buy a Ferrari and a pantsuit and get a cute boyfriend, speaking as if I was a woman right now, and I do, not I do not suddenly then become the chief female CEO of a Fortune 500 company because I have the Ferrari and the pantsuit and the poodle. Like, that doesn't get me being the CEO of the... the adopting and parroting the outside is not becoming the person in the faith, the appointed one that I'm after. Alex Baumler, who used to go here, some of you know, made fun of me a little bit because when I, after I had become a pastor, got a pair of black jeans and a red and plaid shirt. And he goes, oh, rocking the Portland pastor look, huh? And I was like, ah, you dog, it's true, isn't it? I got up here and I go, this is a look that will work because this is what people expect and this is the kind of vibe and this is, you know what I mean? Like I am trying to assimilate into what the appointed one looks like in hope that that will make it all work. That is a problem. That is not the way that we're supposed to become Christians is to parrot just the outside of what we see. And so sometimes it also scares us, it freaks us out. It freaks us out. So then we become the kind of person that are repelled by the group of, of appointed ones. We say, I'm not going to become an appointer because I can't stand those people, right? John's becoming the Portland pastor, and I don't want to be that. John's now wearing this, and that's not my kind of church. Sorry, I left my phone on. I got all sorts of technological distractions today. So either we feel the pressure, like I said, to become the group that we're a part of, or we feel so repelled by it. We want nothing to do it. Either way, we miss the point we miss the point 
of enrollment into discipleship. It is not to look like a certain thing that we see around us and thereby imitate the outside of it, nor is it to be so repelled by a version of it that we want nothing to do with it. Now, some of you might say, I'm, I'm missing you. I'm not sure what you're trying to say here. I think there is a deep either desire and infatuation to become an effective Christian like these people and therefore copy their model and do it all wrong for the way God has given you to do it in your space, in your life, in your next place. Stop looking around so much. Listen to Jesus, read the Bible, practice the faith. Stop looking around. Some of you need to hear that. For others of you that are iconoclastic Portlanders who say, I'm like nobody, I am my own individual person, that's why I moved to this city, you can't stand any version of the faith you come in contact with. You have something to say, a bias against it, a critique that says, I will never be a discipler because they are knocking on doors, they're hanging door tags, they, they're constantly, every coffee meeting is trying to get people to know Jesus, they're using people, they're manipulating every evangelistic technique is to try and eventually get that person in the door of their church and they're on to the next one. It's disingenuous, I want nothing to do with it, I'm so glad I never did it. And you're justified in that because you've painted a version of what it looks like. And you have said, you have written off, verse seven actually, but to each of us, gift, grace has been given as Christ apportioned to it, exactly how we need it. Empowering us to do exactly what we need to do universally to become Christians who we get Christians. And you say, I don't have to do that part because I don't want to look like that. Or you say, I want to do this part because I want to look like this. And it excuses you from the process of discipling other people. And in that way, sometimes what we do is what I'm going to say, I'm going to call confusing the particular with the universal. That's me saying, I am no longer a pastor here. I no longer have to pastor. That would be me confusing the particular with the universal. Maybe not all of you consider your primary gift shepherding, but I have seen pretty much all of you shepherd. I don't think, I don't think Paul is saying he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers as if those are all separate, distinct identities that you only wear one of your whole life. I am a pastor, but not a teacher. I'm a pastor, but not, a, I've literally said this word, I'm a pastor, not an evangelist. I've said that to people to defend my lack of desire, my proclivity, my ability, my gifting to evangelize, which then writes off all of the evangelism I have done in my life effectively because I've taken the particular and I've confused it. I know what an evangelist looks like. Clint was an evangelist, I'm not that. Therefore, I'm not an evangelist. You have all done this in different ways. But Christ has gifted you with the necessary gifts to practice this aspect of following Jesus. 
And in the closing of this church, he is going to somehow, I pray to God, teach you and make that blossom. I pray it for myself. That in some way, this process, this ascendance moment and appointment moment and scattering moment will actually level me up and all of you up. Enrolling us again in the process of discipleship. Because the other option is to misunderstand again and again and swirl like a pond that eventually stagnates in on itself. We can spend all day long debating whether we should do this or not, but the, the text is clear. He gave each of us grace to equip his people for works of service. That means it has come into us and it will flow out of each of us, not just the person with position, not just the person that you have said they have it, I don't, not just the person where you say, I want nothing to do with them, they can, they can have that. So what Paul is saying when he says there is one body and one spirit, one Lord and one faith, is he is saying that our distinction, so there is one but. That is him saying our distinction is evidence not of how great or unique we are, but how everywhere Christ is. There is one Christ, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but each of you works that out in the everything of Christ in the universe. He says, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. We are part of the everywhere Christ. William Barclay writes that the church must be the body through which Christ acts and the voice through which Christ speaks. You don't get out of this identity. Since he left in the flesh and appointed us, the way that he will be known in the flesh is only through you and I. Only through you and I. He can be known through text to other people. He can be known then through their imagination. But the only way flesh will interact with flesh is if you or I are Christ to each other. And this is the necessary God-ordained plan for the kingdom to reach the ends of the earth. Whoa. This means that like Christ, we must be down to earth. He descended into the earthly regions. It was necessary for him to come down to earth for two reasons, at least. One, because when you're down to earth, you realize that this is all you've got and you better make the most of it. You can, I have spent all day long in fantasy worlds of what this church will look like, what my family will look like, what my life will look like. It's not very helpful. What would be a lot more helpful is to be down to earth and say, this is what there is. God has given it. It's everything I need. The Pentecost moment 
has come. It's here. It continues for eternity. We've got it. Let's go down to earth like Jesus was. Jesus could have said, I need a different 12. Let's actually disband. I'm going to pick 12 new ones. You guys are just screw ups. But he said, no, I have faith in the father that the 12 will do it. So much faith that I can leave and I know that you've got it. Because I trust in God to do it. So that's one way we're down to earth. The other way we're down to earth is that like Christ who came down to earth and descended before he ascended, he came down to be with us. So another aspect of our down-to-earthness is just to be together with each other. I was having a really hard day on Thursday. I don't even, I can't even explain it, guys. Like some days I just wake up dark funk. Just, just can't even put words on it. I don't want to do anything. I do the things, but I'm like not happy doing them. Not proud of it. I don't know why it happened. Megan was like, what's going on? I was like, it's not you. I just am having a hard day. Had a hard day the whole day. Then she came home. She told me, I asked against like wanting to, how was your work day, right? Like, tell me, I want to engage you. I want you to know that I'm, I wasn't feeling it. I didn't want to do it emotionally. I wasn't like, yeah, I want to hear it. Tell me about your work day. And she told me about the director of the, of the harbor, who's a new guy who's a former pastor, named Brian. She goes, Brian was telling me the story and he asked, how are you doing? How's the church closing going? And she goes, well, it's tough. And he goes, yeah. He goes, we had a plant in Portland for three years. He was out at the west side. He said, we did a plant in Southeast for three years. Just felt like we were banging our heads against the wall trying to get anything to happen. So it was the hardest, hardest experience. And closing it was so tough. Now, I don't know what happened, but that changed me. From that moment on in the day, I was able to have a lightness of being. I was ministered to through Megan because of Brian. Because Brian shared a, an abject failure in his life, like a thing that didn't work. He poured three years into something by all like cultural measures did not work. And that act of sharing that in his down-to-earthness, in his being with me, in his suffering, was healing to me. Because I realized I am not alone. Now, Brian was Jesus in the flesh, acting out the kingdom, and he has no idea that that happened to me. He still doesn't. He may never. If I sit down with him, I would love to share it with him, because I bet it would encourage him. That is the kingdom. Brian, in his practice of continually knowing that everything he does with every gift he has is acting out the process of appointment, not, but not just that abstractly, he strategically is also appointing as well. He engaged with Megan to ask about her day, not because it's just what he always does, but because he knows in his position that he is to care and rise and grow the people underneath him that he directs in this nonprofit by knowing them first and then empowering them. And the way he knew to empower her was to be with her, to resonate and say, I get it. And then to trust that that will do something. And I bet he's not done yet. 
With you, maybe with me. Because he's an appointer. He's a pastor. He knows that wherever he goes, he will do this. So it's not just, I, I want you to not write off and say, well, everything I do in my life then, John is saying, is kind of like appointing people. So I don't even need to really think about it. I just need to go live my life and it's all grace and God will like make disciples in spite of myself and I can just live my life. Yes, but Brian was also strategic and it continues to be strategic. There is fall off of his strategy that is sort of like, I guess you would call it random. That is not something he's planning, that is ancillary, but he's still doing strategic things to appoint people. And way more of those things are happening on the fringes because he's doing that intentionally. Does that make sense? All right. Second thing about our distinction, when we're down to earth, third thing, sorry, when we're down to earth, is that we'll, it will increase our actual unity. So this passage is about oneness through distinctiveness, realizing I've got all I've got, all I need to grow to oneness. One distinct one. That's what this passage looks like. To equip his people. He gives these gifts to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful schemes. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. There are many aspects, many pieces of this process of appointment. Some of them will be part, part you just being a cog in the wheel that runs correctly for the program to happen. But that does not free you from the responsibility of seeing that it happens. This means that all of the, it's like a machine, a modern car. I'm gonna just guess here. A modern car has a lot of sensors and those sensors give feedback when that part is not working. They don't just stop working. In a modern car, there's actually like a little sensor from the wheel that reports to the motherboard of the computer. I am no longer working. There is ice. We need to do things differently. This is in a weird mechanistic way, sort of an example of what Paul's getting at. That in each of us practicing our distinction well, united in purpose, that it is up to us because God has put himself in all of us to do this job is going to result in increased unity. That means anytime we're in the practice consciously of realizing we're enrolled, we are increasing unity of wherever we're enrolled. So wherever you're in next, your job is not just to, I'm a disciple making machine, which I probably none of you really think you are. Your job is to increase unity and believe that that increased unity with the tension of constantly pushing on that to go outward 
will result in the answers Paul's looking for. Because here's another problem with unity. We're all so united. We have potlucks. Everything's great. We love each other. It's the best. This is not the kingdom. Because Jesus goes, I'm leaving. It's up to you. And guess what? Even if you're all happy, there's another generation that won't get it if all they see is us hanging out together. They won't get the full kingdom mission. They won't absorb it by osmosis. They won't know it because they're not seeing it, because you're not living it. You've entered a new kind of comfort zone from your oneness. And I'll wrap up, hopefully, here. <laughs> U2 is a great band. Carrie's not here to uh, amen that but this is probably the second or third time I've used one of their songs. But when I was reading this, I thought of their song one multiple times, right? Because here Paul is going, there is one body, one spirit, I can practically hear Bono singing, one love. Like, I can just hear it. And I was like, okay, God, what's, what's going on here? Why did you give me this? Is there, let me dig down this rabbit hole. Is there anything? I do this sometimes and there's nothing. This time there was something. And I read the lyrics. Bono's a Christian, probably was thinking in this direction, and he realized that we can rely on that oneness to get us out of contribution. We can actually rely on the oneness of everything to serve us, the unity to be for us to be comfortable instead of to strengthen us to, in his words, carry each other. Here's what he says. Will it make it easier on you now? You got someone to blame. You say, one love, one life, when it's one need in the night. One love, we get to share it. Leaves you, baby, if you don't care for it. Did I disappoint you or leave a bad taste in your mouth? You act like you never had love and you want me to go without. Well, it's too late tonight to drag the past out into the light. We're one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other, carry each other. One love, one blood, one life. You gotta do what you should. One life with each other, sisters, brothers. One life, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other, carry each other. It's Paul's message. Paul's message is you are one and distinct to carry each other. Step up. Start carrying wherever God has put you. At cohort, Noah was saying, isn't, what's the version of Christian enlightenment? Isn't there kind of like a destination like it with Buddhist enlightenment with Christianity? What is Christian enlightenment? This is it. It is to become like Christ in the reality of being down to earth and carrying each other. Then you have arrived because you are living not as one who has arrived and is superior, but one who has in an upside down way arrived to enlightenment because you realize everything you've been given is gift and its purpose is to carry each other. And this is the example you lead, the message you give in all of the teaching that you will do in your life so that true Christians will grow up around you. 
So I'm not going to pray today. I'm just going to go straight into communion. But I just want to show you how this is that. Jesus had 12. So it doesn't matter. I don't need 500. I got 12. 12 is all I need. I trust that God will do the rest. Get this. They go up to the room. What's the first thing he does? He washes their feet. He says, this is not just something I do to you. This is an example of what you will be doing for the rest of your life. You start with foot washing. But that, if that alone was the Christian mission, we would have the mainline progressive church right now, which is washing everybody's feet in town. That is only leading with a moral example. To do that is to become a moral person. But then he goes, I will die for you. And in that process, during the Passover season, when communion was happening, Jesus was embodying the Passover lamb whose blood would be put on the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over. So it is not just a way to socially help on this horizontal plane, everyone be better by carrying each other. It is to also recognize that we are carried by God. And if we don't realize that, we can't truly unite in one body, one spirit. Because if you take this text and you look at verses 4 through 6, what is he saying? There is one body. Which body is that? That's Christ. There is Christ. There is one spirit. That's Christ. There is Christ and Christ. Just as you were called to one hope. That's Christ. So there was Christ and Christ. Just as you were called to one Christ. When you were all called one Lord, one faith, that's Christ. One Christ, one Christ, one Christ. Christ, 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 Christ. Why? Not just as an example. Because he died for you. He is the only one who can give you what you need. And he's the only one who can give everyone else what they need. So we come in one Christ together, united, so that with him, this is the big thing, with him, we can carry each other. All right, I'm going to do the final set and we can take communion while we sing.